Julia first. Good to see you this morning. Uh, if you're new here, we're so glad that you've taken time out of your day to join us. Um, just glad that you're here. Uh, we are in a current series uh, entitled The Good and Beautiful God. And I think I just killed something. Uh, I think I did, yeah. Uh, we're in a series called The Good and Beautiful God. Did I do that? Oh, great. Oh, boy. Um, hey, there we go. Look at that. Magic. <laughs> We're in a series called The Good and Beautiful God. And if you missed last week, uh, we were talking about the fact that God is trustworthy. That so often in life, we have perceptions of God that aren't true. And so we talked about the fact that God is trustworthy. Now, it's one thing to say that He is trustworthy. It's another to practice that He is trustworthy. And I wanted to share this story with you before we get started this morning. Because some of you are saying, what does this look like in my life? Well, we have a family here whose son... Went to the hospital, he's 29 years of age, and he is in the middle of heart failure. Young man, 29 years old, his heart is failing him. And Wednesday, we went up to pray with his family, we went up to anoint um, this young man, and in the middle of anointing him, when we got done, I spoke with his mother, and his mother said this. She said, regardless of what happens to him, regardless of what happens to him, God will be honored in this moment. Now, I'm sorry, uh, if that was my son laying on the table, if that was my son laying in the bed near death in that moment, I would not be the parent saying, whatever happens, God gets the honor. So I just want to share that with you this morning because that's what it looks like in real life. When we actually put to practice the very things that we teach, it's moments, moments of darkness, moments of death, where we are truly tested whether we believe God is trustworthy. So this morning, I'm excited about this morning's message. Uh, can't wait for it. If you would pray for me this morning, uh, I'd greatly appreciate it. Lord, we give thanks for this day. We acknowledge your presence in this moment. I pray that you would be in this time of teaching. May we use what you have given us for your good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to share a story with you. Before we moved to Joliet, we lived in a wonderful city called Topeka, Kansas. I like Topeka because we had a good church. We had lots of great friends. And in addition to that, um, the city was kind of a family-friendly kind of city. But there was one thing that I hated about Topeka. And I use that word. I, I know I'm using the word hate, but I actually mean hate when I say this. And here, here's why you'll understand in a minute. There's one thing I hated about this city. There was an organization who called themselves Christians uh, named Westboro Baptist Church. Janelle and I live just two blocks from their compound. You talk about creepy and weird. Uh, it is really weird. If you're not familiar with Westboro Baptist, these are the people that protest soldiers' funerals. These are the people that hold up signs basically saying that God hates the world. God hates everybody else but them. These people lived in the town that we lived in. And they were, they were constantly on the streets. Um, and so they were known for all the signs that they held up. Now, every Sunday when I would go to church, I was a youth pastor there in Topeka. Every Sunday when I would go to church, they would be standing outside of our church protesting our church. A Christian cult, a Christian cult, I use that term loosely with them, Christian cult protesting a Christ-like church. Pretty funny. And so they would hold up signs and, and, and we would go out and offer them water, but they had one sign that was my favorite. Now, I know I'm about to show you these signs, and you're going to say these aren't kid-friendly. Well, you'll notice in the picture that kids are the ones holding the, uh, the, the, the signs. So I'm, I'm sorry, but my favorite one was this. It says, can we show up the first picture? It says, your pastor is a whore. 
Yeah, every Sunday, rolling up with our kids, there's these folks sitting here. Your pastor's are. Now, I always wanted to get a selfie because I thought that was the funniest poster ever. I thought it was so funny. But they wouldn't take the water that we gave them, so I figured they wouldn't even let me have a selfie. And one of the things I used to do when we go to pastor's conferences, pastors really don't really... I mean, it's like a big show, right? You go up, oh, what church are you from? And, and how many people go to your church? And that's it, kind of this political kind of game. So, and, and often pastors aren't listening because they really don't care. And so what's funny is when people would ask me, where do you pastor? And I say, oh, I'm a youth pastor at Westboro Baptist. And they'd say, oh, how's that going for you? And I'm like, hey, here's a picture from our last youth rally. We had a great time. You should have been there. Uh, we're growing in numbers. Um, no, but there was one time, there was one time um, my anger, after a while you just get used to it, it's a big circus and a big show, but there was one time, uh, they, were, they were holding a sign, uh, we pulled up to the corner where there's a Presbyterian church and a Lutheran church, and on the corner, my, my kids are sitting in the back seat, Janelle is driving them, and they have this sign held up right next to our car, and it says, if you can't read it, uh, it says, fag church, and it has two stick figures on it. Now, I'll never forget this moment. Janelle came home and told me, uh, Carter, who was three years old at the time, asked Janelle, what are those people doing with that sign? And then he asked this question. What are those people doing on that sign? So how do you explain to a three-year-old what the people are doing on that sign? But the question that really bugged me the most was the first one. What are those people doing with those signs? You see, their message, their message is a message of hatred. I find it funny that, that Jesus tells us specifically to fight evil with good, and yet their message is one of hate, that God hates you. He can't stand you. And this was the message that was perpetrated. How do you explain to your three-year-old son that we believe in a God who is merciful and loving, yet there are people who claim to be Christians standing on the corner telling people how much God hates them? Now, here's the underlying message in this whole party, if you want to call it that. The underlying message is that you world, you sinful people, you haters that God can't stand need to earn your way back. That you must earn your way back. And here's what I know to be true, right? This is what culture has taught us. Taught us. This is what the world has taught us. In fact, we, 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 we run by this sort of theme. We are learning the narrative of earning. We are learning the narrative of earning. That's what we do. From the very moments we are born to when you are grown-ups, you are constantly learning. This is what the world wants you to know. This is how our lives are lived, is by learning the narrative of earning. It is the learn-to-earn culture. In fact, earning is defined by this. Earning is, uh, is the gain of something deserved in, re in return, in return for your behavior. It's something deserved in return for your behavior. See, this is what it looks like in everyday life. My kids, right? I bribe them. They, they've learned this. They, the, the, the learning, the narrative of earning, they, they've learned this. That if they will clean the basement, if they'll clean the rooms, if they are good for the week, I will take you to Portillo's to get cake shakes. Now, they will do anything for a cake shake. Anything. But what they've learned is that if they work hard enough, if they just work hard enough, cleaning the rooms, cleaning their basement, being good to their mom, then they will earn the right. They will earn my favor to buy them a Portillo's cake shake. Men uh, who are married, you know this in your marriage. Trust me, you know this. See, you think, you think that if you 
clean the house, if you pick up after yourself, if you take care of the kids, or you take your wife on a romantic date, you believe that romance enhances your chances. Now, some of you know what I'm throwing down. You think you can earn your right, earn your way to enhance your chances. Let me just tell you those that are new to marriage, that only works for the first year. Only work. They catch on to your schemes. I think about work, right? I think about people who are workaholics. I was a workaholic at one point in my life. See, workaholics think that they can just earn their way up in the world, that if I work long enough hours, if I work hard enough, if I work harder than the, the person next to me, then I will earn the favor of my boss. My paycheck will be, be, be bigger. My bonus will be bigger. And eventually, I will earn a title that is bigger than everybody else. We think that we can earn our way, earn our way up the ladder. Now, here's also something that's true. Let me tell you this. I'm actually talking about myself when I say this because I've been there in this moment. In the learn-to-earn culture of workaholics, it's really about your ego. See, you have the need to feed yourself. You, you've, you've, you've done this, right? You've walked up to somebody and somebody says, oh, I've had a long week. And you, know, and you let them know how many hours you've worked. Because if you don't work as many hours as I do, you're not as important as I am. In fact, you're not even equal to me. Because my job's more important. And what we do is we work so many, so long, so many hours trying to get the title, trying to get the position, trying to get the money, all about me. Now, some of us would pawn it on our families. But you throw your hours around like it's a boxing match of who's better. You do. We do. In fact, this isn't something that we struggle with today. This is something that has been struggled with from the beginning of time. In fact, there's an ancient Jewish parable. I love this parable. Ancient Jewish parable that goes something like this. There was a king who hired many workers. He hired many workers, but there was one worker who was more efficient than all the other workers. And so it came time in the evening for the king to pay all the workers that he had hired for the day. And when he started paying everybody... The people that worked all day long, that worked all the hours, all day long, were upset because the king paid the more efficient one the same amount. And here's what the king says in this parable. The king says, you slackers and you losers. He didn't say that in the actual parable. I, that's paraphrase. That's my take on it. The man who was more efficient did more in two hours than you did all day long. And he has earned, earned the right to be paid this amount of money. He's earned it. Because he's worked hard. Now here's what I know to be true about the learn to earn culture. Deeply seated within that system, deeply seated within that culture, we begin to thrive. We begin to thrive. Much of our performance is based upon grief or uh, 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 fear, guilt, and shame. Much of, much of what you do is based upon fear, guilt, shame, and a longing for acceptance. And here's why. Because if you don't, you'll fail. And failure in that system leads us to a place of loneliness and isolation. Loneliness and isolation. Some of us have been there. Some of us have failed in life, and we have felt like we are all alone. We felt like we are isolated, and nobody even cares because we have failed. We have not performed well in the world. And here's the deeper problem with that system. When every situation 
when every day, when every person, when every part of your life is determined by how you looked, how you act, and how you perform, that learn to, learn to earn culture is perpetuated onto our understanding of God. Believe it or not, we think we have to earn our way to God. It's deeply seated. If you've been in the church for any time in your life, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, we feel like we have to earn our way to God. I'll be honest. One of my struggles every week, as much as I think prayer is important and as much as I believe in it and as much as I've practiced it, there are weeks where I just don't do it. And, and here's the game in my mind. You know what, Brad? You didn't pray enough this week. And because you didn't pray enough this week, I won't give you people to be responsible for because you just aren't in tune with me. And I start to feel guilty about that. And I start to feel shame about that. And I think that God won't trust me because I haven't prayed enough. And, and, and I stand up here and then I feel inadequate to be even talking to you today because I haven't been in tune with God. That's, that's my story today. And then we think that God's love and his forgiveness, those things are limited. That we have to earn, we have to merit his love and his favor by what we do in life. Now we've been saying this. We've been saying this over the last few weeks that our understanding of God has to be consistent with the God that Jesus reveals. Remember this? Our understanding of God has to be consistent with the God that Jesus reveals. And today, we're going to look at a story written by a man named Matthew. Now, you know this. There are four gospel accounts, which simply mean good news, of Jesus' life. There are four writers of Jesus' life, and one of those is named Matthew. Now, Matthew is the first book in those gospel accounts. It is not the first account that has been written. In fact, Matthew, Matthew borrows his uh, account from Mark, who we talked about last week. I'm not going to talk a lot about Matthew this morning because we're going to look at his life in a couple weeks. But here's what you have to understand about Matthew. I think this morning he writes this parable that we're about to look at from Jesus. He writes this parable with him in mind. And here's why. Matthew is a tax collector who pays taxes to Herod Antipas. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you. But before Matthew goes out and collects his taxes, he actually has to pay taxes first to Herod Antipas before he goes out and collects. So the point there is, is he has to earn what he has lost from the very beginning. When he starts his day, he has a number in mind that he has to reach, a number that he has to earn. And what happens is he ends up extorting people for money because he has to make up what he's lost at the beginning of the day. And I think Matthew writes a story to us this morning to say, listen, I've experienced something different than this learn-to-earn culture. It's something different out there. And I met this man named Jesus, and I want to tell you, I want to tell you this story because I've been there. I've been in the learn-to-earn culture. And here's what he says when he begins to write about Jesus. In fact, this is Jesus speaking this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. He says, For the kingdom of heaven, which one of my favorite phrases, no time to unpack it, but for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed, agreed to pay them a denarii for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About 9 a.m. in the morning, he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing absolutely nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He went, in, he went again about noon and three in the afternoon and did the same thing about five in the afternoon. And he went out and he found others standing there, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? They said, because nobody has hired us. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, this is at 5 p.m. That's like the, 
about the time some of us are quitting and some of you are starting. But either way, it was late in the day. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, going on to the first ones hired. The workers who were hired at about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarii. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive in return for their actions, thing that they deserved, they wanted more. When they did receive what they were paid, they began to grumble against the vineyard owner, the landowner. They said, these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal, I want you to hang on to that word, equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now, I, I, I want to pose this question to you this morning. Have you ever watched somebody get what they don't deserve? Have you ever been at work? Maybe you've put in a project together that was extremely important to your company. And you decided that you were going to skip dinners with your family. You decided that you would go early on Saturday morning to work. And maybe even you took your day off on Sunday and you went into the office and you worked hard on this project. And when you completed the project, you submitted the project to your supervisor, who then went to the boss and the board of the company and said, look what I have done. You've been there, right? You've worked on something that somebody else took credit for. If you're a student in here this morning, uh, you, you remember this in science fairs. Science fairs, right? Maybe five, six, or seven of you are given a project. You come up with a thesis that you want to work on. And you're excited about the work. But then when it comes to the work, there's only two of you working on it. And the other five are dipping out, doing who knows what. And then you remember that Saturday morning, right? That Saturday morning you were exhausted because you were up the night before, if you're a procrastinator like me. You were up the night before, long hours, working hard. You stand before the judge, and the judge stands over you, and he's accommodating to you, he's complimentary of you, and says, you know what, you deserve an A. And you were prideful in that moment because you did deserve an A. But then you looked over, and there were the five other people who didn't do one thing to deserve it. You ever been in that place? It's interesting because we want to use the language this morning that the workers use. We do. In fact, I want to go back to verse 12. If you put, put verse 12 back up there for me. This is, what, this is what the workers say. This is what we say in the learn-to-earn culture. Do we have verse 12? Can we go to it? It says this. These who were hired last worked only one hour. And then they said this. Then they said this. And you have made them equal to us. You have made them equal to us. You see, this is a statement of stature. It is a statement of status, and it's also a statement of ego. Who are you, who are you, to, who didn't work as many hours as I did, to think that you are better than me? Not only equal to me, but just better than me. Because if you're equal to me, then you think you're as good as I am. Who, who is this guy to make all the hours that we've worked, and this guy did absolutely nothing? are you to make them equal? They're not better than me. They're not better than us. They don't work hard as us. That's kind of the response in the learn to earn culture. Who are you to make them equal? You aren't equal. You're a bunch of peons. Have you ever been on the other end of that? You ever, ever been on the other end where you feel like you don't work long enough hours? You don't have the greatest job. You don't have a lot of money. You don't have that big house or whatever you think it is that is successful in life. 
and you feel like you are not equal to the people who have earned what they have. You've been on that side? You ever walk into a party, a scene, a setting where you're probably the least paid person and you feel like it and you know it? It's intimidating. You see, what the worker's statement is, when they say that, why have you made him equal to us? What they're saying is that in this world, we earn our equality. You must earn your equality. That's the world we live in. That's what you face every day. And whether you understand it or know it, this is how you feel inside, and it's also how you feel about God. That to earn God's favor, to earn God's love, to earn equality with God, you must earn it. Now, Jesus continues on. I love this. Do you remember the parable that I told you at the beginning, the Jewish parable about the workers? Do you remember this? The guy who worked harder than everybody else. He was more efficient than everybody else. And that the king, the master said, you have earned what you've been paid. This, this parable was written about the same time that Jesus tells this story. And so here's what Jesus' response is. I love this. In verse 13, he says, I'm not being unfair to you, friends. This is the vineyard's response to the workers. He says, I'm not being unfair to you, my friends. Didn't you agree to work for a denarii? He says, take your pay and go. And I want to give the one who was hired the last the same, the exact same thing that I gave you. Now, I love this. I love this. Because Jesus wants to say in this moment, as he tells this parable, he wants us to envision a new world where we don't live by the learn to earn, where, we don't, where, where things don't make sense, where we don't get what we deserve, Right? He wants us to envision this world, and he wants us to live in a world where the undeserving are equal. The undeserving are equal. This is why Jesus is sharing this in this important moment in history, because what has been told up to this point is that you must deserve your equality. And Jesus is kind of flipping the script as he tells this story to people who are all about earning. He says, the undeserving are equal. Now, I love what he says next. Because Jesus goes into one of the most important statements, important statements that counteract what we believe to be true about God. He says, this is the vineyard owner, but I think Jesus in this moment is actually revealing the nature of God. He says, don't I have the right to do with what I want with my own money? He says, and I love this phrase, or are you envious Because I am generous. Are you envious? Because I am generous. So the last will be first. And the first will be last. Let me be clear this morning. In our world, we get what we deserve. In our world, where we live, we get what we deserve. In God's world, in God's world, I love this, we undeservedly get what God graciously gives. In God's world, we undeservedly get what he graciously gives to us. Is that resonating with you this morning? Here's what I want you to know this morning. 
If you haven't heard anything this morning at all, if you've tuned out for just a minute, uh, tune back in. Here's what I want you to know. This is what I want you to know this morning. That God is generous. That God is generous. And here's what I really want you to know. That God's story, God's story is built on unearned grace and unrestrained generosity. That God's story is built upon unearned grace and unrestrained generosity. This is God's story. This is the story that Jesus reveals to us today. This is an owner who freely gives to people who don't deserve. He gives to people who don't earn their way to him. Unearned grace, unrestrained generosity. Now here's what's interesting. We are generous people, but we are generous people to the things we take joy in. If you were to look at my coffee budget, my coffee budget is quite extensive because I enjoy coffee. Right? When you give to companies, when you give to people, when you give to organizations, you give to them, you're generous to them because you, you enjoy what they do. Right? During Christmas, when we walk around and we see the Salvation Army people ringing the bell, right? We put our leftover change after spending thousands of dollars, we put our leftover change, okay, maybe not thousands, okay, hundreds of dollars or $50 or whatever it is, and we put our leftover change in. Why? Because in that moment, we enjoy giving at a time where it feels good. So here's my question. By nature, we give, we give to the people that bring us joy. We are generous to the people that give us joy. Why would God not be the same? Have you ever considered that perhaps God takes joy in each of you? That he created you, and, and, and he loves what he's created and because he loves what he's created, he loves you, he takes joy in you, and he is generous to you. In fact, I, I love this. We have a neighbor across the street. Um, they have a little son named Jack. He is a handful. He is the cutest little baby. Listen, you could scream at Jack. You could yell at Jack. You could get in his face or scare him. You could do whatever you wanted to do, and the kid would literally smile at you. My kids run by on the rollerblades and he's sitting in his little pack and play jumping up and down at the screened in door and he's like laughing his head off at him he just thinks they're funny and they are goober heads but it doesn't matter what you do who you are what you look like or how mean or how happy or how nice you are to jack he will smile at you and i think this is how god looks at us are you at a place in your life where you you feel like god's not smiling at you do you feel like when God looks at you, he's frustrated? Do you feel like God is the God who's standing on the corner telling you how much he hates you? Is, is that the God that you know? Because I'm telling you this story this morning because I need you to understand that God takes joy in you. And because he takes joy in you, he is generous to you. He's generous with his forgiveness. He is generous with his love. And there's nothing that you could do to turn you away from him. So here's something else I want you to know. I don't know if we have this. I don't think we have this on the slide, but you are what you believe to be true about God. That's free. I don't have that on the slide, so this statement's free. You are what you believe to be true about God. I find it funny that, that oftentimes people who have been given so much forgiveness and grace are unwilling to return that favor. 
So if we believe God is generous, if we believe God is giving, then why do we hoard those things as though they are finite and that we forgive people so often that eventually forgiveness will run out? Like, we, we, we tend to think that these things uh, are commodities that eventually they'll run out if we just keep doing them over and over again. If we love people too much, if we forgive people too much, if we're nice to people too much, if we're happy too much, we have to be angry. If we're happy too much, eventually happiness will run out. That's what we think. But when we begin to take a look at who God is, we understand that God is generous because he, he gives out of abundance and compassion, and it is never-ending. It's never-ending. Never-ending. So if you believe that God is generous, if you believe that to be true, then what does that say about you and how you are generous to other people? Do you delight in other people? Do you take joy in other people? Are you generous with the generosity that God has given you? That's the question this morning. So you're saying, well, uh, what do I do with this, right? What, what do you want me to do with this? What do I do with the fact that God is a generous God? I think one of the things that we struggle with is the images that we have of God. I, I can't get the signs of God hates you and everything else that I showed you this morning out of my head often. And so we need new images. In fact, this is what I want you to do this week, is I want you to get new images of God. I need you to get images of a generous God in your mind. And you're saying, Brad, how do I do that? Hey, listen, thanks for asking. So glad you asked this morning. There's a wonderful psalm that uh, we all know, Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Part of what I try to do every day, and I don't do every day, part of my prayers that I say every day, Psalm 23 is in those set of prayers. And at first I thought, oh, that's just a dumb psalm. Why would I, I don't need to say that, you know. But I remember the guy who taught me the importance of this prayer. He said, let these images. He said, Psalm 23 is filled with imagery of who God is. And you know, I, the more I begin to pray it, the more I begin to think about it, there are some things that really begin to resonate with me. You know, I've always been struck with the phrase, lead me down the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The words for his name's sake always caught me because, you know, often we do things for our own sake, not for his sake. But then I started thinking, what is righteousness? Righteousness is about God's restorative work in the world. It's about his restorative love and justice in the world. And what does restorative justice and love require if you're going to walk down that road? For you to walk down the shadow of evil of death? If you're going to actually follow God into the unknown, it's going to feel dark. It may feel like failure. And you know what God does? This is what he says. He sets a table. He sets a table before you in the presence of your friends. No, he doesn't say that. He says your enemies. Your enemies. That when we walk the path of righteousness, this is a God who prepares a table with your enemies. And you're saying, what is good about that? And this is the imagery that gets me. Right after following this idea that you will sit with your enemies, he says... And I will anoint your head with oil until your cup overflows. And I think about, you see, we, we anoint people here every once in a while. And anointing is about receiving 
God's power and goodness. Right? If you need power for a situation that you feel like you can't get out of, if you need God's grace and His mercy to forgive someone you feel like you can't forgive, the beauty of Him anointing you, the beauty of Him anointing you is you receiving God's power in that moment. So this week, I want you, I want you, when you sit down after you've gotten lots of sleep, week one, after you have looked at beauty in the world and sat in silence, week two, after you've given thanks for all the things that God has given you last week, I want you to sit down and I want you to pray Psalm 23 is a prayer. Not as something that you just have to recite, but let these images, let these images of a father who leads us beside still waters, who restores your soul and makes you whole, let those images pour over your life this week because some of us don't have images in our mind, but God who is generous and loving. And I want you to experience the God that is generous and is loving. Let me pray for you. Lord, we give thanks for this day, for this moment where we can experience and come to know a God who is so full of love, so full of grace, and so generous to us today. And so we thank you. Maybe this morning we need new images of who you are in our mind. And we need to replace them with the images that have been shaped by the world. So this morning, we invite you into our lives. We invite you into every part of who we are. And we pray that this week, we will begin to know a God who wants to give. Because he is generous. You are generous. So we give thanks. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.